Hello, welcome to episode 135 of the Chattering Classes. Uh, with Little Man and the Trees. Uh, it's called that because I'm interviewing author Inga Simpson, um, who has released the book at the end of last year called Willow Man. Now, one stroke of luck can change your life. Uh, it's available at all good bookshops, all bad bookshops, uh, online. Um, also available in ebook. I'm guessing. I'm not guessing. Uh, it's all there. Um, and here's my chat with Inca, and it's a delight. So uh, this is episode 135 of the Chattering Classes, and I am talking. I'm very excited to be talking to Inga Simpson, author. How are you, Inga? I'm good, thanks, Matt. Yeah, good to talk to you. Inga's joining us from the lovely southern coast of New South Wales in a very rustic-looking shack, <laughs> which which he said was hand was hand built. Yeah, my father built it by hand. It's stone, and yeah, there's big timber beams and. Yeah, it was a massive undertaking, eight years. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, it looks like there's equipment or hooks or something behind you. It was Well, he was into blacksmithing. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, some of that's just like there's a railing behind me I'm showing you now. Yeah, Rhode yeah, Island cool. railing. And the hooks, some things are just decorative. You know, there's an old pulley system. Right. Whatever. But he did use that to put in the stairwell. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> put in a stairwell. All right. That's uh that's much handier than anything I can aspire to. Me too. Um, I, now, I've got a question that we're going to talk about your book, uh, Willow Man, um, in a bit of detail, but I have a question just about you as a writer in general. Uh, and the first question I have for you is, um, why do you love trees so much? <laughs> I don't know. I just feel an affinity with them. I feel happier when I'm surrounded by trees. Um, I grew up in a property that was pretty pastoral you know it had been most of it had been cleared so yeah. the trees were precious things I was conscious that the whole area had once been forested you know and they'd been cleared away so those that were left were precious to me and yeah there was a part of the farm that was still kind of wild and that's where I spent a lot of my time it was definitely my preference to be among trees than out in the paddocks you know so did you get that affinity can you remember like being quite young yeah that? pretty young yeah and when I read uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, that right. kind of made it, it made a lot of sense to me, the Ents. And so yeah, I was going to say the Ents marching their way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, trees that could talk and think and move and change the course of Middle Earth's history anyway. Uh, wow. So that brought them to life imaginatively for me. Yeah. 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 I um, As I'm an English teacher and the question I have to also follow up with is, uh, do you have to resist the urge to turn like meta trees in the metaphors at every opportunity or yeah probably or turn trees into people probably yeah like to think of them as sentient beings and you know maybe they are they feel that way to yeah. me but yeah i'm always sort of looking for phrases metaphors images how can i describe them or explain what i saw to some yeah, what i'm seeing yeah. you've written uh you've got a children's book um the book of australian trees that's for kids you've got i mean i was reading the uh blurb i guess it's understory the a life with trees um and I, I won't do it justice but this is what it says on the back is that you know i see the world through trees 
Every window and doorway frames trunks, limbs and leaves. My light is their light, filtered green. My air is their exaltation. Yeah. You're a good writer. Thank <laughs> that's, you. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So is that how you feel? I mean, that's obviously from, from your point of view. Um, so being amongst nature, do you feel like a, I guess, a lowering of blood pressure, a lowering of heart rate, that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. And I think um, part of it's visual, you know, a softening. Um, the light is filtered through trees, leaves. But I think, you know, it's forest bathing, isn't it? There's more oxygen in a forest. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they're sucking in what I breathe out and I'm I'm breathing in what they exhale. So part of it's probably chemical. Part of right. it maybe is some kind of genetic memory, you know, back when we... We came, before we came out of the forests. Yeah, yeah we were I don't know. It's the, just, trees. the change of yeah. temperature as well. It's always yeah, cooler. cooler. Yeah. yeah, no, they calm me definitely. So, I mean, were you on the south coast in 2019, the end of 2019, when the horrid bushfires came through? I was. I was here um, and evacuated on New Year's Eve, and yeah, yeah um, the fires came pretty close. You know, I left thinking that'd be it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this place my dad built by hand, and yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world with these ancient old man banksias. Um, there's a out on the point. There's a nature reserve with this banksia walk. You know, they're probably three, four hundred years old, and they haven't really been regenerating. So yeah. I drove away thinking that was that. Um, but yeah, the southerly came through mid morning, which you know it never does. That's an afternoon thing. And, yeah. Um, it turned it around, but yeah, that that meant. The suburb to the north was pretty much wiped out and yeah yeah it came within a kilometer 800 meters on one side a kilometer on another and yeah maybe a kilometer and a half on the other so yeah the mogo fires people in canberra certainly will be familiar with yeah the mogo fire that that was bearing down on me when i got up that day right yeah. wow how horrific um and i mean i i grew up on the central coast of new south wales and i remember being i don't know 15 as we had horrible fires and 1994 uh and the thing that always struck me was uh, apart from how black the sky can be with smoke is um the regeneration of of the how how it's possible for such striking green to come out of like black timber i guess um and did you notice that quickly or has it been a slow process because obviously the fires were were horrific yeah, they were incredibly um, hot and widespread. I don't think, you know, I always say, well, there's, I can't go anywhere in my region without seeing black, um, yeah. you know, and still sort of ongoing. I think 80% of yeah. my shire and the one to the north and the one to the south burned, um, or 80% of the forests. So that's pretty brutal. But, yeah, it is miraculous, isn't it, about Australian trees, I think, um, you know, we used to re eucalypt sending out that epicormic growth, you know, that crazy fuzzy growth out of their trunks and out of yeah. the base of their trunks. And that's kind of a survival mechanism, you know, until they can re regrow proper limbs and things. So it's yeah. a it's an interim state, a kind of um, panic growth, I call it. Right. But the thing that struck me most was in the Clyde Mountain, which was where, you know, like three waves of fire went through one spot there and incredibly hot. And to see tree ferns yeah. sprouting by the side of the road, you know, out of these black trunks. And they've been doing it 
for millennia, but it's it is a miracle still when you see it. Yeah. 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 The uh yeah, all the loss that that happened is it's still, I guess, important for the hope of the region really to to see any kind of rebuild and regrowth and uh, again, getting back to metaphors, I guess, of, yeah. of the of the entire area. Um, all right. Now, I wanted to um, talk to you in a, in a bit of detail about Willow Man. Um, my good friend Alison gave me this book before Christmas, and, um, and I believe the the main reason we're talking today is because my lovely cat Otto has a lovely habit of sitting on books that I'm reading, <laughs> and so I took a photo and posted it on on Instagram, and then you commented on that and then i thought i'd ask you to be on the um on the podcast but um so willow man is uh i think alice when alison gave it to me she said it's a bit um glib of me to say this book is about cricket so you should read it um knowing my love of cricket but she said it's it's more about um the making of cricket and i thought that was a good term (laughs) Mm. um yeah i like that yeah, you've got you've got the uh, half the stories about this young cricketer Todd Harrow, who's you know a um, up and coming superstar of the game, and half of it is about um, Alan, who makes the cricket bats. Uh, and as someone who loves cricket, as, as I said, we'll get into the weeds of cricket a bit later on. But I wanted just to talk to you about how much research you had to do that. Certainly at the start of the book, I was fascinated with your, uh, again, descriptions of nature and how the willows grow and how the bats are made. How much actual research into the production and history of, of cricket bat making did you have to go into? Yeah, a lot, um, because I really needed to understand the detail of it and all of the steps of it to then describe it in a way that, you know, hopefully is interesting and um, makes sense and is correct so yeah yeah, that's always the hardest if it's something you haven't done yourself or don't know intimately it's much harder to write about um, with any authenticity so yeah Yeah. I spent time with a bat maker uh, Lachlan Fisher uh, and he stepped me through the whole process from beginning to end Uh, he made me a bat so you know I could hold a a high quality bat shaped for me Right. And and hit a ball and, you know, feel what that was like, hear what that was like, um, carry it around all day, park it near my laptop. Absolutely. Um, like some sort of batter. Yeah. Um, that Lachlan Fisher showed me, he, and there's a couple of people doing this, but he's growing white willow here in Australia. So right. he showed me the tree growing and stepped me through the process of um, planting them, harvesting them, yeah, bringing them down. You know, and all the little stories that go go with that um, yeah. which helped with um, you know I incorporated yeah most of his little anecdotes that he shared with me because it's those details that make something real absolutely um, there was a book um, pod shavers and quilt wanders I think it's called right which is sort of the history of the game um, of wickets of cricket bats you know of the the process for making bats and, and the leather ball so yeah I had to kind of devour all that and get it straight in my head and um, look at the video I'd taken, you know, in Lockheed Fisher's workshop, all of that, to kind of, uh, yeah, write convincingly from the point of view of a traditional batmaker. But, yeah, well, a lot. One of, one of the notes I made when I read it was that the, the, the care of the, the care of the making of the cricket bat sort of reflected in your writing. 
So you're the way you wrote it was carefully, not carefully written, but you could tell like a love and a care of the actual process that comes through very clearly in your writing of it to match. I, I, I was just fascinated because, you know, I played cricket for years and nothing like picking up a bat in the, the that's how cricketers choose their bats is pretty much instantly pick it up, yeah. go, Oh, this one feels perfect. And when you, when you're at that level, like in the, in the book and in reality of like, you know, talking to people who are making the bats and saying, I need a bat that feels like this and does this on a very small level. Did you have that contact? Was that all through uh, Lachlan's point of view or was that, um, did you have any contact with actual cricketers that talked to you about bats as well? No, not really. It's certainly not elite cricketers. Um, yeah. But, you know, I've read so many biographies um, of, you know, mainly Australian players. So yeah. there's those stories in my head too. Often they talk about their backyards, yes. you know, how they grew up, why they play, you know, all on one side of the field because that was their mother's rose garden. Or That's right. That's right. Yes. My my block at home was a, a long sort of rectangle. So playing in the V uh was was uh, was well considered so to this day yes on the front foot is where i where i like to be because yeah if you if you're playing any square shots it's going over the fence with any lift on it so yes yeah. it's very interesting how that works yeah so things like that um their stories of their first bats or finding a bat you know the bat that really worked them on, for them on some tour yeah i don't know i absorbed all of that over the years yeah. the two two things that surprised me number one was the this uh, anecdote from the early 1900s, early 1900s, I did mark the page, where the um, English didn't want Australians making um, like proper willow bats in Australia and coming to Melbourne and then cutting down all the willows. I'm guessing yeah. that's a true story. Yeah, no, it is. Um, yeah, and m- much told. But, yeah, I... One of the things that struck me, you know, researching the book um, was it's still such a colonial game, you know, yeah. with Australia being a colony. Yeah. That, yeah, the, um, the English still kind of have most of the, the best willow in the world stitched up, you know. Yeah. So it's doubly satisfying to beat them, isn't it? I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are so many reasons why it's good to beat them. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so it's, it's, it, I, I read that and I thought, obviously, that's true the British not wanting anyone else to have what they have. It's pretty much the history of colonialism, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And kind of, um, you know, with T, I was interested in this time when T20 cricket came about and everyone said, oh, this is going to be traditional bat making. Yeah. And, you know, it is hard for the little bespoke maker or shaper to get, you know, this is what Lachlan Fisher shared with me, that, because he's only buying in small quantities, he can't, you know, it's hard for him to get hold of the best quality stuff. That all right. goes off to big companies. Yeah. So kind of this globalisation of of the sport, of the game and, you know, commercialisation of it, the, the way that changes it. Um, yeah. You know, the way it's changed our lives in lots of ways. But, yeah. yeah, I wanted to show that, yeah, there's kind of a renaissance of these handmade bats too. You know, there's a, a pushback. Yeah. All of this. People want the bespoke, you know, they want the handmade bat. And, you know, women's cricket uh, was a particular niche that, yeah, has come into the game because the off the shelf products didn't suit them at all. 
Well, that, again, that's what I enjoyed about the book. And I, I won't go into too many details with the plot, but just the fact that it starts off being about one one sibling and it becomes about the other, well, in terms of their rise in cricket um, yeah. and the and the sort of side character becoming more in that era. Like you said, it's 2007, 2009, the rise of T20, but it's actually also about the rise of women's cricket and um you know, the fact that we had the the World Cup, was it the T20 World Cup, the Women's World Cup, where, you know, 80,000, 90,000 people I know. went in such a, a relatively short space of time to to realise, and, and I guess for men to realise in their infinite stupidity that, oh, no, there's never, a, there won't be a market, there won't be a market. It's the same in, in you know, that the what they're finding with soccer as well. Like very recently, only this week, you know, they announced that the first game of the Women's Football World Cup this year is being moved to a stadium that holds 80,000, not 40,000. <laughs> and again, people would want to show surprise of like, wow, I didn't know there'd be that much interest, but of course there would. Why wouldn't yeah, there be? given the opportunity. Given the yeah, opportunity, a, that's right. I mean, I, I wouldn't have foreseen it myself, you know. So when I started researching the book and when I first started writing it I I knew I wanted to bring women's cricket into it yeah and have um the siblings and have everyone kind of us underestimate yeah uh, Olivia but you know including her brother particularly her brother but yeah even I couldn't have predicted how well the script went you know women's cricket you know it's been incredible yeah yeah so I I um wanted to just ask the the technical question um I mean, the stupid version of it is like, why do you use real cricketers to a point and then it becomes, um, you know, created cricketers? Uh, but I think a, a better question is, how did you decide when, what the cutoff point was between the real? That was that was the weeds I got into in my own mind yeah. of like, oh, when you're writing this, how did you go? All right, well, I'll have, you know as I message you, you know, sections on Damien Martin and sections on Ricky Ponting, but then there has to be a cutoff point where you start all the players I'm going to reference are fictional. So was there a process to that or did you just, you know, go, all right, it'll have to be here? Um, no, that's a great question. It was a fairly, uh, yeah, laborious. That was one of the hardest decisions of the book, actually. Right. Yeah, do I include real people? Do I make up everyone? And I found myself wanting to talk about some of the greats of the game. Yeah. But I didn't want people to be too distracted. Yeah, so if I made up everyone's names, I didn't want everyone to be figuring out, oh, who's oh, that? Oh, this is that. Right, right, right. Gotcha. You know, that would be a distraction because already there are people who read it just to, you know, and I'm not joking, people who read it trying to find some mistakes. You know, oh. that's... That's their interest to go, wow. oh, what does this person know about cricket? I want to find all the mistakes. So I knew there'd be that element. Um, wow. So I didn't want people looking to, oh, who's that meant to be? Yeah. Who's that based on? And I still do that with my made-up players. Yeah. I thought it was, you know, the book draws out the history of the game a yeah. lot. And so that I want the history to be accurate, you know. So then I need to reference the real players. And some of those stories are fantastic, like Dennis Lilly's aluminium bat. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> clunker, chucking that into the... Yeah. yeah. Wow. They're great stories. And I wanted to ground the reader who maybe isn't a cricket nut 
yeah. in what they do know. So Ricky Ponting, you know, everyone knows who Ricky Ponting is and how he walked and how he swung his arms when he went out the back and how he yeah. chewed gum and how he fielded. You know, so I wanted to give people these reference points. Yeah. But with the, the sort of play, the playing team that Harrow was part of, the sort of squad that, you know, small changes but a core group of people, Yeah. I wanted to be able to write those characters to suit me and the plot. Yeah. And to be free to play with them, to do with them what I wanted, to have them That's be right. whoever I wanted and, you know, move those chess pieces however I wanted. Yeah. And to do that, to free myself up in that way, I had to make them up. Yeah. 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 I um I, I have to admit I did I didn't I wasn't consciously trying to work out who this person was, but there were too many connections I had with the way Todd Harrow played and the way Philip Hughes played. Yeah. With like this sort of surgical intent. Um, I remember talking to my brother when Philip Hughes tragically um, passed away from, you know, when he got hit. Um, and my brother said, oh, I remember I, I got to see him uh, when I, I was lucky enough to do like the hotspot camera at the at Canberra here, just friends of a friends, people, you know, like, do you want to go and operate hotspot? And I was like, yep. <laughs> Which, in fairness, like a, a monkey could do, like it's literally <laughs> pointed at one end and then the next over pointed at the other end. Um, and I got to watch him from ground level at, at Canberra and um, I think he got, you know, 80 or something. Um, and people were annoyed with him because he wasn't slogging it and he, was, he wasn't thrashing it everywhere. But I was just, oh, my God, I was so yeah. in love with the way he played the game yeah. and just the way he could just, oh, you got four players here, I'll... I'll by the time he had his eye and it just seemed very easy. Um, and just reading that through uh, when I was reading about this young kid and I thought, oh, well, maybe like you've used it as a model. And then, of course, um, I think what you really captured in a, in a cricketer's career is the young cricketer who comes in and uh, is just on top of the world immediately, uh, impossible to get out, just scores runs in their sleep uh, and then either gets injured or hits a form slump. Yeah. Um, and it, I thought you, it was very well observed in your description of what happens to a young cricketer. Um, my question is, though, when you observe that, like when you're watching cricket and you see that, um, as someone who, you know, isn't qualified to comment on cricketers, what do you want to tell those cricketers? Because <laughs> just reading what, you, what, you, what you've written, how like what what do they need to get past do you think oh fear of failure yeah right yeah i think i mean yeah i did um i mean very much based on the philip hughes story that was the sort of second you know there were the initial um inspiration for the story came out of reading about white willow and the kind of mm -hmm. magical mythical qualities it has and, yeah you know i'm a tree and timber person so I'm like all right okay no, I love cricket this is my way you know there's a book here for me one day and then the second you know the boom boom two shots the second one was Philip Hughes dying and you know I just thought he was the best player you know one yeah. of the best the best player of his generation I think yeah. Malcolm Knox has said that of so he Warner Kawaja I don't know who the other one would have been there were four of them maybe Watson mm. um that, you know, Hughes was the most talented. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So, you know, such a tragedy to die so young, you know, in the process of trying to get back into the Australian team. Um, I've never forgiven the selectors for dropping him. You know, he just, yeah, they should have just stayed with him. Uh, it caused yeah. him unnecessary angst. It's so, the same same thing happened over and over. Uh, like, the, as you've already mentioned, love of my life, Ricky Ponting, um, when he was dropped quite early on in his career uh, for seemingly no reason, uh, maybe personality was the was the issue with him when he was younger. But the same thing of like the the it wasn't his first test innings, but I believe like when he when he hooked very specific when he hooked Winston Benjamin for six at the Gabba. <laughs> Uh, when he was on like one run or something, and it was like, yeah. yes, this is my guy. He's going to yeah. take him on. And then, yeah. yeah, two tests later, they go, "Oh, he didn't score any runs," so they drop you. And you, and as a fan, you're like, "What? No, yeah. you got to give him time and yeah. all of that stuff." But yeah, it's the same with Philip Hughes. So just, yeah. So just one time too many. I think it was that Ashes innings with um, Ashton Agar. Yeah. You know, so a lot of it is comes from things Hughes said. Um, you know, either in the press or in biographies. Um, he knew after that. So I think he'd been out. He wasn't playing yeah. for most of the Ashes. And then they play him down the order, you know, and he helps Agar get to 99. And yeah. I think he said it was, that was my best innings ever, but they'll drop me. Yeah. And they did. Yeah. You know, so half of batting must be, particularly particular as an opener, must be confidence. Yeah. So how to destroy someone's confidence um, I think there was this school of thinking that you had to toughen players up, but yeah. toughening up is one thing and breaking them is another. Yeah, you have to and drop them and get them to, you know, rebuild. Yeah. Look at Kawaja now. Yeah. You know? He should have been, you know, we've been through a lot of openers um, yeah. that should never have gotten a, a run. You know, it should and he's, have been, a, he's he, another one with like the first time you watched him bat, you were like, oh, this guy, wow. just keep me in the team forever. Yeah. Like just silk. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, and also um, first sign of any diversity in the Australian men's team for a very long time. So, you know, yeah. um, positive on all true. fronts. Very true. Yeah. Um, and, and again, the, the same thing happened to seemingly your favourite, Damien Martin. Um, <laughs> and again, a man who, who, whose uh, batting technique and style is like poetry, really. Like when he was in form... Um, <laughs> And again, like there is a particular innings, and maybe I'll put a link to it, where he scored fifty in a one-day game in South Africa, and they just put, you know, seven people on the offside, and he just kept hitting through them along the ground, yeah. just stunning <laughs> with hardly any movement. Um, but he was another one, just yeah, a bit of adversity. They drop him. Yeah, this idea of oh, you got to, as soon as you have adversity, we'll drop you, and then you have to rebuild your game mentally it seems more than anything else yeah and fight your way back are you yeah. tough enough to fight your way back yeah. yeah it's pretty hard i mean i have to admit that i saw a lot of um parallels between writing <laughs> you know i've got to, i've got written down here when you said fear of failure and how you got yeah. to get rid of it yeah yeah um and being in the public eye you know most writers can walk down the street and no one knows who the hell they are it's not yeah. the same but still that once you put your work out into the public arena, then it's up, to, you know, you're putting yourself and it up to criticism. Yeah. Um, it can be demoralising, you know, so and that emerging as a product, you know, which didn't happen to me, but seeing writers who, you know, have a massive big first book. Yeah. You know, oh, this prodigy. Oh, wow, everyone loves them. 
and then the second book isn't as great and everyone's, you know, heaping crap on them, you know. Yeah. So I hated that. I hate that about Australian sports fans. You know, we turn so quickly. And so it's quickly, not unique yes. to Australia. But, yeah, the minute Phil Hughes stops smashing them or he's out of form, you yeah. know, the, he goes from prodigy, the best player I've ever, ever seen, to, oh, no, drop him. He should be dropped. Drop him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so this is media, sort of media need. Um, yeah. And you can look at someone like even like Mark Waugh, again, one of the more beautiful batsmen ever played the game and fielders um, who even in the midst of the, the Australian cricket team winning 16 tests in a row and just being unbeatable, the media needs to have one person to focus on. And I think that's the thing with cricket that you captured in the book. It's very rarely spoken about is the, there's 11 of you, there's six batters, seven if you're Gilchrist, but he's never getting dropped. Um, <laughs> there's six batters, and as soon as people turn on one batter, then it's everyone is talking about one player out of 11. It's all yeah. on you. And so that pressure to go out to bat, when you're in form, you just, who cares? You just go out and yeah. you bat and you're free. It's that freedom. And it's sort of, I don't know, it's a thing that you watch with cricketers where you're like, Oh, there's so much pressure on you. That's impossible because you you only play with freedom when you're relaxed. Yeah, not thinking about it. It's just, yeah, and so and it's we're the gonna... hardest place to stay in. Yeah, you know? it's sort Absolutely. of this window before everyone finds you out and before the press turns on you and before you start doubting yourself. Yeah, um, when you're a young player and you just come in and especially if you're, you know, at so many occasions that you look at Manus Labuschagne where we're here to come in after Steve Smith got horribly. Um, knocked out in England, but it's the same thing of like, oh, oh, who's this guy? I don't know. Do we have any notes on him? Oh, like yeah. a paragraph rather than all of these things, and just being able to play with that freedom to then, then give it a year or two, and everyone's trying to find and watching tape and watching it. And yeah. Go, all right. We if we bowl at this exact spot, then he's not going to score any runs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess what would I say? You know. I mentioned the parallel to writing and yeah. my answer to that or my my aim, you know, if I'm disappointed with a book or a prize listing or sales or whatever it is or it's just not the writing isn't happening for me, it's to focus on my process and on the writing itself. So just my craft and between me and the work in progress and getting better and learning and so I guess it's the same. That would be the ideal for a cricketer, you know, batter yeah. or bowler. But I think probably batter more so. That famous um, Greg Chappell story, right, where he got how many ducks? Six ducks in a row and and um, one of someone from the media, I can't remember, I'm misquoting it, said to him, are you, I don't think you're watching the ball. And he was like, oh, everything else is swirling through his head. Yeah. And like you said, the, the, what you actually have to do is shut all of that out and just watch the ball. Yeah. And once you do that, you're like, oh, okay. Like, I don't know how you get, I've, I've been a batsman um, and I don't know how you get into a form slump, but I also don't know how you get out. Even looking back, you just survive and then all of a sudden it comes back and you're like, oh. Okay, and all that stress goes away. And when you're in form, it's the it is a really easy game. It's just yeah. And I don't well, with know with writing. With writing, I just keep turning up. 
Yes. Again and again and again until oh, until it comes back. Right. <laughs> right. If yeah. You, if you don't get a chance to keep coming yeah. back, you know how how does it? Yeah, you know, I don't know. And you know, very easy for me to say it's just me and my laptop. Um, yeah. I can control my environment. I'm not out in the middle of a field on national television with close-ups. Yeah. Absolutely. Interviews. Yeah. People watching your front arm and all of these yeah, whole, yeah. these things and the way your yeah. knee moves. Um, speaking of like that sort of the fear of failure, do you think, um, I think I listened to an interview last night where they said you, you started writing you, or started a career in, uh, in your mid-30s. Um, do you, did starting a bit later make it a bit easier to sort of, handle that i mean we see that in in cricket as well that a lot of these players don't really peak especially the batters don't really peak until their early 30s where they used to be old considered old in yeah. cricket and now it's sort of you know and when you when they talk to cricketers a lot of it is the same thing with people that age of like well i've got a family now i i cricket is not my life and i'm not i don't wrap my whole identity around it i can't do that so i wonder if was it a bit easier for you starting late to sort of cope with that? I mean, any kind of arts, you're coping with a lot of rejection, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I already had a career behind me and, you know, I was in a position uh, where I was earning a good income and, you know, I could do writing on the side. So if I failed, it wasn't the end of the world um, or wouldn't have been the end of the world, I guess. But I was in a, I guess having success in my professional life gave me the confidence that I could, you know, and I kind of did writing and research, professional writing and research. So I didn't know how big a transition it was, but I thought I could make the transition. You know, I was confident in my research, yeah. um, my writing to a certain level. So, yeah, definitely having life experience, um, a certain level of confidence. Yeah, some, res you know, resilience already in the tank. Yeah, definitely yeah. help. Yeah. Was there a moment of like a breakthrough? Was there a moment of it might have been very small, but you know, it's not necessarily getting nominated for awards or anything like that. But was it in a, a moment in your process or a moment in in response that uh, gave you sort of a an impetus to keep going? Because I'd imagine that first book is the hardest, or maybe not the hardest, but you know, the uncertainty. Yeah, definitely. Just writing it. I don't know that I could do it now, weirdly. Just to write right. a book thinking, is anyone going to publish? Like, what am I doing this for? Yeah. I still ask myself that question when I know, you know, I have a publication contract. So yeah. um, I had written two books. I wrote a detective novel and then a kind of speculative fiction novel. Yeah. And both came close but didn't get picked up. And then I got some really good advice. Um, I won a mentorship or something like that. So a manuscript came close. It was shortlisted for something rather. And um, the mentorship I won with that, the advice was, well, stop writing so close to yourself. You know, choose a main character that is much further away from you, you know, to free you up from right. everything you know, you know. And so I wrote, you know, this became Mr. Wig. I wrote from the point of view of an 80-year-old man yeah. thinking, well, that couldn't be further for me, you know, and it did free me up. Something happened. But the actual moment, you know, in writing that book, when it started to write itself, yeah, you know, when you just feel like you're almost just channeling something, like being in that zone as yeah. a batter, 
where you're just seeing it, putting it around. So the equivalent on the page is, you know, just the words, ideas, sentences coming. Yeah. I'd wanted to write this big sweeping, you know, a great Australian novel set in rural Australia and um, Mr Wig didn't end up like that at all because I started writing about his orchard and the fruit trees started, you know, developing personalities and yeah. whether they actually speak or he imagines the conversation he would have with them. Yeah, the fruit trees started talking for me. So that, I don't know, kind of became the heart of the book and instead of toning it down, I took it further, you know, I right. took it as far as I could. So that, that I could feel the difference in the writing um, and it went on to get published. But even before that, you know, before I knew that would happen, I knew that something different had happened. Right. Wow, that's lovely. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask a question? Have you ever thought about, like, doing, do you do walking tours of, like, nature, natural areas or anything like that? I have done. Only yeah. in Scotland, weirdly, but I have done sort <laughs> okay. of riding and walking. Yeah, yeah wow. Tours in Scotland. Yeah. Wow. I, I just get the sense that would be very, um, very engaging, all right, to, to have that opportunity to, you know, walk around, listen to you talk about trees. Yeah. Um, and, and your love of it. There's a, like I said, it even comes through in the book. That that just seems like right. This is like your heart, like you see, like you said, the seeing the world through trees, just that connection. Um, and to be able to put it where you need it, I guess, in in a book or in a in any kind of story, is like you got a like, little superpower there. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's you. the way I put it. Um, all right, well, I'm, I'll let you go. I mean, I'm, I could talk about cricket um, for a long, long time. I, I will ask you this question: Do you have like a a favorite cricket moment? where you were if you're either there live um or uh-huh. even uh i don't know if you did much playing of cricket but even a moment of watching it on tv or like a a favorite moment of yours um a tv moment mm-hmm. i think it's the world cup but a one day game <laughs> australia and new zealand okay when stark bowls mccullum first ball, first ball. Of, yeah yeah Right. It was just electric, even on TV. You know, yeah. The crowd just oh, just stood up as one. And Stark's my favourite player. Oh, so, right. Favourite men's player. So, <laughs> you know, and so he's always getting a bad, hard time, being given a hard time, you know. Yeah, again, why, why, are we, why are we giving him a hard time? I, um, I still say, like, the, uh, the bowling awesome of him, uh, Hazelwood, Pat Cummins and Nathan Lyon. It's just the best we've had since, you know, McGrath, Gillespie, Lee, and Warren. Like it's yeah. I, I I never understand any criticism that that we level it again. It's that we've got to pick one player. Yeah, we're going to pick Mitchell Stark. Okay, he's really yeah. good. Would you like yeah. to face him? I don't know. It's... Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's not sort of metronomic like um, no Hazelwood, but then no. he can be more lethal when he's on. That's right. When he's you on. Know, no, he's thank on. you. Yeah. Um, sort of that Mitchell Johnson as well, but um, Mitchell Johnson, we uh, we used to call him the bad boyfriend. That was, that was <laughs> because he'd like, oh, he's back. Oh, Mitchell Johnson's back. He's changed. He's changed. He's much nicer. Yeah, he's amazing. Oh no, falling back into it. It was only that one that series against England where he, you know, really destroyed them. That uh, I actually have a I have his autobiography. I don't have it close by. And he actually signed it to Matt love uh good boyfriend that's how he signed it 
my friend got it for me and they they asked him to sign and he was like what and they're like yeah it's a long story don't worry <laughs> um but yeah he was i always loved him and even watching him um when i saw them play watching stark and johnson bowl stark was faster but mitchell johnson looked faster hard yeah. to hard to explain what about like a moment live what about any live moments that you uh got to see um I saw Peter Siddle take a hat trick on his birthday at the Gabba. At the Gabba, yeah. Yeah, right. that was, yeah. That's probably you were, where you I, were there. That's fantastic. Yeah. So those moments are big. Um, you tend to remember the personal moments almost. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Uh, what about you? Um, well, I have a, and I'll, I'll make sure I can send it to you. I have an actual video of Peter Siddle's hat trick that I took live because huh. I had a feeling. So I got a yeah. feeling here that he's going to take it so i got my phone out it's a 2010 my uh daughter who was nearly two or must have just turned two was watching with me and so i've got a, a video of it of him you know them giving it out and me screaming and then my child crying and running off to find <laughs> mum so that's where it cuts out quite abruptly but i had a feeling it was one of those things where i was like yeah. oh, i have a feeling um i mean on tv the nothing will ever compare to the 99 World Cup semi against South Africa, where I was, I watched it every ball uh, of that World Cup when I should have been studying for uni. Uh, actually, it might have been when I started a teaching prac and I, was, I should have been in bed getting ready for, <laughs> you know, being observed by teachers. But uh, I think tying that game, but going through to the final and the drama of that whole game, the best one-day game I've ever seen. It was just from start yeah. to finish, you could never... You could walk in every five overs and say who's going to win, and you just kept changing your answers. Yeah. Um, but live, uh, I don't know. The thing I always remember, uh, David Boone was always a hero of mine too, and I watched him bat so well against England, and then he hit three fours in a row to move to ninety-seven. And then the, he went for four in a row and just belted a ball straight to gully to get out for 97. Uh, I still remember that. It's weird. Cricket is a stupid game. You remember yeah. a lot of the fa failures and the fact that you can get 97 and fail and yeah. uh, or get like you can get 13 and go, that was pretty good. That was, that was a good <laughs> inning. So it's a, a weird game. But, yeah, they're probably my two moments. Just, and also seeing Shane Warne bowl uh, at his prime, I think, one of his peaks was against South Africa when he got his 300th wicket, but he just bowled a spell of that I'll be telling people about forever, just captivating. Where Glenn McGrath was bowling from the other end and you were like, hurry up, Glenn, just get <laughs> yeah. through your over so we can get back yeah. to, uh, I've never, that was every ball, something happening. And that's what Shane Warne did, I guess. Yeah, and I, he was so amazing and I didn't want to put him in the book because it would be, so distracting that yeah, I regret it yeah. now. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to you. It would be distracting. It would be. Uh, yeah, he think? was. He yeah, very big, very very big. He was a, uh, you know, such a different character. I mean, amazing. Obviously, an amazing cricketer, but just not. Uh, just did not fit in with any modern cricketer. Again, he was a seventies cricketer, playing in the nineties, yeah. basically. Yeah, which lifestyle. I had a lot of sympathy for yeah um, you wouldn't believe you know whenever I would tell people I was writing Willow Man they'd start you know very few would say oh great a cricket novel fantastic very few people said that to me yeah um and some were just dismayed 
<laughs> why? Why yeah. would you do that? And then they would quickly move into bagging Shane Warne. And okay. Um, someone, when I told someone about how upset I was when he, um, when I found out he died. Yeah. Um, you know, you're probably the same. You remember? I remember exactly where I was standing and how the news came in. And at first, yep. I thought, no, 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 you've got that wrong. That's Marsh. Yes. And that's and right. Then, yeah. You know, you reread it, go into Cricket Australia app, and there it is. It's true. Yeah. But yeah, when I told a quite a close friend that I cried. Yeah. Um, on hearing that news, she laughed. Wow. And I just think, wow. Um, okay. So that's someone who knows nothing about the game and that's how right. good he was and what he achieved and how much he's done for other people. Yeah. Um, just distracted by, you know, Daily Telegraph headlines. That's right. Yeah. What yeah. all the off-field stuff. I mean, he's the wisdom, one of wisdom's five cricketers of a century, along with Brad- Bradman and Viv Richards and Hobbs. I can't remember. And Gar- Garfield Sobers. Like he wasn't just, oh, this. Oh, you know, and even I think it does him a disservice to be, oh, he's larger than life and even he's not a mythic person. No. He was the most average <laughs> yeah. cricket cricketer we've ever had. Amazing bowler, yeah. but just yeah. the most average person. And all the stories that you hear from people who've met him were just like, oh, yeah, I've met him. He was smoking and drinking <laughs> something and you know, he was, you know, nice, happy to see, you know, very polite and friendly. and then. That was the end of the interaction, but it's just, yep. My wife said, like, oh, it's like, it must be a shock. Like, are you surprised? Not, it's not that much of a shock with the no. with sort of the life that he, he led, it's, but horrible. Because he was, again, and this is um, selfish to say, but he was a, a really good commentator as well. Yeah, absolutely. An excellent reader of the game. And he should have been, again, because of those headlines, like he really should have been captain for a long yes. time and he would have been a successful captain, especially in that era with that team. Yeah. But he never let a game drift. He never let a game sort of yeah. stutter along. He was always trying to do something. Yeah. It was amazing Adelaide. Like yeah. that was, a, I was teaching on that day and we had the TV on and it was just, <laughs> you know, anytime there was a break in the lesson, you'd run in. Oh no, we got not like <laughs> yeah. just horrible, horrible to be at work on something yeah. like that. When you knew it was happening, you could yeah. tell. You watch enough yeah. cricket, you can tell. The the thing again, like you said, if people are saying, "Why would you write a cricket book?" the the challenge I would think is that it's um it's a game that where nothing happens and then it all happens at once. Yeah, you know, and that's that's the joy of it. That's why why we love it. But I don't, you capture that in the writing. It's it's hard to uh, it's it's not it's always on TV and it's the sound of you know, my childhood growing up was on the radio or on TV, but um, it's being at the game and getting a sense. That's why I like Shane Warne and Ian Chappell as commentators because they would be ahead of it and say something's happening. I can feel it. This game is drifting or the bowlers have just slowed things down and they're doing this. And um, when you're at the game and if you're paying attention, which I always did and my friends always did, no matter how many beers we consumed, um, was just it's a, a game that draws you in with its intensity. Um, yeah. And that's what you're writing, isn't it? It's not, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you through ball by ball each day. Yeah. That's not how it works. Or one exciting game. Yeah. yeah, and if you, like you say, if you haven't been following the whole game, you you don't, you're not getting it. 
That's and right. And if you don't know the players and their histories and the yeah. history of the teams and those two teams playing against each other, you know, then you're only getting, what, a 20th of the story. You know, right. it's, it's a game that rewards attention and study. And, you know, I think what I love about it is all the commentary, you know, all the analysis. Yeah. What other game? I mean, I know people are, are as into football, but, yeah, it just lends itself so well to analysis. Yeah. Mm. You know, I guess there's time to sit back and analyze. There is time, yes, exactly. Yeah, but yeah. Um, that's what I love about it and that's what I wanted to show, that, you know, you need to invest and actually pay attention. Um, and the other thing, you know, thinking of Warren, the other thing I wanted to show was how hard it is, how bloody yeah. hard, you know, those uh, elite players, people who get to play for Australia, how yeah. hard they work to get there. You know, yeah. they're not just numbskulls who turn up after a big night out and, and whack the ball around, you know. Um, yeah. It takes real discipline. I liked her, the the time you gave to the life outside of cricket and how hard, even just the idea, especially, you know, I, I grew up and I was an hour from Sydney. That's not much. But these people that, you know, had to risk, like, oh, I'm going to quit my job and travel, you know, I've got to travel four hours to do this training thing and then drive back that day. Is yeah. the, I mean, it's obviously a lot of in um elite sport that's the biggest thing is the investment in time um that you don't see like you said you just see these people come out yeah. play you know like, oh they get paid millions to just you know stand around the sun and and yeah. that's their job and you're like yep that's true but or it's yeah. the you know like the the simplification of like you know there are people that would play this for free like, okay yeah right they they'd probably happily stand in the field for free but would they then do mm. all the media stuff and the travel and the, I don't the know, fitness, the fitness re- and rehab when they're yeah. broken. Yeah. Yeah. Dealing yeah. with people in your team that you don't get on with, you know, yeah. how, how to build a successful team. And, you know, it's, it's clear sometimes like, Oh, that player, they were really good and they never yeah. played for their country. Uh, they didn't get on with the captain. Like, oh, that's, yeah. I mean, that yeah. went as far back, that went back forever. I'd say, you know, Bradman was always, and I'm going to get this wrong. He was, uh was he a protestant yes he was a protestant who didn't like catholics and this is like the 30s so wow yeah, yeah so him and and um bill o'reilly they never got on and that's uh and it went back that far of just like nope the protestants sit on this side of the room and the catholics sit on that side and you're like okay, yeah right don't hear that story <laughs> no that's uh faded out thank goodness. <laughs> yeah you know right. or someone like stan mccabe who was always in bradman's shadow almost yeah um and one of those mercurial yeah, these mercurial players. players. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. right, Inga, I'm going to let you go. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, the book is Willow Man. Uh, and it, if you love cricket or you, or you don't love cricket, it's not really about cricket. It's, it's about, <laughs> I don't know, it's about a lot of other stuff. It's about uh, taking your time and knowing yourself more than anything else and taking the risks, I guess. Yeah, you know and right? that dedication, whether it be music, cricket, yeah that making love right it's the love yeah. of it yeah awesome all right thanks inga that's it thanks thanks matt lovely conversation yeah